0: And I'm sitting at the window. I'm sitting at the window doing like paperwork. And he's knocking on the window because he cause they're allowed to roam. And so he's knocking on the window, knocking on the window. And I'm like, and I turn back. Last time he starts banging on the window. I turn. This f- guy, this is completely like irrelevant, Estelle. This f- guy literally showed me his the inside of his asshole. F- Legitimately. It was the inside of his ass. F- I was like, what the f-
1: On today's episode, we have Teresa Tanelli, a licensed clinical social worker, to give us insight on her work with those who have suffered through severe traumatic experiences, incarcerated juveniles, and psychiatric patients. We also dive into how she was able to overcome her own trauma and mental health struggles and how it shaped her career in the mental health field. Listen up, everyone. We now have new merch in stock. Go to ianbick.com to check out our selection of hoodies, t-shirts, and beanies, just in time for the holiday season. Use code LOCKEDIN at checkout to receive 10% off your order. That's code LOCKEDIN at checkout. Remember by hitting the subscribe button on YouTube or giving us a follow and review on whichever site you listen to this podcast, it helps us tremendously in being able to produce high-quality content on a consistent basis. Sit back, relax, and get ready to lock in with Teresa Tanelli. Teresa, welcome to Locked In, coming to us from New Jersey today. Yes. How was the ride in?
0: It was very good. It was good. It was nice. You got the
1: New Jersey accent or the Long Island accent or whatever you want to call it, the New Yorker accent. Do I? A little bit, right?
0: I can't hear it. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. I can't hear it.
1: Does anyone ever tell you that before?
0: A million, billion people.
1: So you are a very interesting guest today because you're our first clinical social worker. And we're going to get a really good in-depth um, insight into the mind of some of the guests that we've had on the show. That and you listen to the show, right? Absolutely. What was your I love? It. What was your favorite one? Your your favorite guest?
0: I don't remember his name. I'm going to be honest, but it was actually one of the ones that you were just recorded. I watched it on the way here, but it was different from. I think because it is in Newark. He, the guy was talking about he was from you – know, he well, he was living out of uh, – he was a homeless addict. He was living out of Penn Station. William. Yeah. Or not – I'm sorry. Uh, airport. William Air, – the airport. Newark Airport. And it's harder for me to connect sometimes with people that are so – with stories so far away. And I have to hear – and this goes even with clients sometimes um, – that I have to hear something that just catches my attention and but something about him i don't know if it's because it was newark airport or what but his story just and i guess it kind of ties into the person that i was speaking about and just opening my eyes to a different type of world that i thought i was not so sheltered from but that i'm very sheltered from um meaning that the homelessness the poverty um, just the the addiction aspects and how that kind of just plays in with what you're gonna do for the rest of your life, unfortunately, or what or what a person's life is gonna pan out to be. Um, and that that one in particular, I don't know why, I don't know why. I just saw something in him that was just I don't know, I don't know. It's almost gonna bring me to tears because like I think about a lot of people that came from nothing and they just built themselves up and it's just amazing it's just amazing and that's like a big reason that like I love watching your podcast is that like I love seeing those people that like every odd is stacked against them every single odd from some of them from day one and to like see them sitting in like your chair like is just and that somebody's giving them that voice it just it gives me chills it just gives me chills and yeah it's just something that Yeah. uh, Yeah. But that particular one, um, I was watching it this morning and it just I don't know, it was the first literally the first thing that showed up on my feed. First thing. And I was like, wow. And it just made me I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, You know, every other one, I, I love all of the stories because, no, I have not been to jail or prison Um, but hearing those stories that are now, you know, people can look back on because they're not there and laugh. And I, I, those are extremely entertaining, obviously. But being from an outsider's perspective, like, I don't know, I don't like to like, it makes me think like, fuck, damn, I don't want to go to prison. Like, fuck me. Like, no, like, and it's just like, like, yeah, you gotta like you gotta be fucking like Teflon Don in there. Um, so yeah, no. I, I love them all. I think they're all there was a gentleman that I that you that you had on here. A little heavy set guy he had on sunglasses, like like a Kangol golf hat. Um I just found it's probably. it sounds like a lot of your
1: Yeah, you didn't narrow it down too much. but
0: Yeah, I think he had on a plaid shirt. It was like a blue plaid shirt. And he he was just very, like, I get, like, enamored with, like, the way people talk and body language. That's just how I am and just the way that he, like, was, like, telling the stories. Um, Yeah. And then there was one, another one about, like, farting in prison, Mm -hmm. the knocking on the table, getting up. Just, like, I, like, yeah, no, I just sat there and just literally. I watched them and then over the past couple of days I just for some reason I don't know if my mind just knew that I was like coming here but like it like switched from like entertainment to like oh <laughs> yeah I'm gonna be here like just yeah I don't know well we're glad
1: you're excited now very excited. these individuals that you, you see on the show are these the types of intervi- individuals that you're working with in, in your current job
0: so my current job No. However, every other job before that, pretty much um, in some every other environment. um, The juvenile detention center is what kind of was one of my first jobs. And that is what but I was doing in-home therapy at the time. And that's where these homes were. These kids lived in the juvenile detention center. And so it was something that. And at that time, I was, like, 24, so I was, you know, 12 years younger. And just realizing and seeing the difference in kind of how, again, the clients that I've had in the past, like, even before that, and the clients that I had after that, and then seeing, like, the, ju- the people in the juvenile detention center or the individuals with, like, when I worked in, um, I worked in involuntary psych ward's um, and I saw a lot there. I used to have to go to court with people, actually. Um, and they were a lot of the people like that you do. That's where I saw a mo- the most of, you know, individuals that had some sort of history, background, or were being held in the psych ward before they went to jail.
1: Now, these individuals, do they all encompass childhood trauma in their early ages?
0: It's a very yes. And I think to be something that I've learned throughout like, cause my specialty is trauma, like trauma focused everything. I'm like a, you know, I'm like a weirdo, deep, dark person like that. Um but people underestimate trauma. People underestimate how much trauma impacts sometimes your daily movement depending on the per, you know, depending on the trauma. And I think, yeah, like to answer your question, yeah, 135% everybody had tra- childhood tra- or trauma, not even childhood.
1: What was like a reoccurring traumatic experience that all of these individuals shared, if there was any?
0: Abuse, of, e- sexual
1: abuse. By the parent or a relative? No,
0: it could could have been, it was, it was a neighbor, it could have been an uncle, it was sexual abuse and definite, t- well, I would say emotional abuse or mental abuse takes the cake like 3,000 percent and you know even for my mind like right now I almost want to kick myself because like people don't realize how much emotional abuse really is how prevalent and how powerful it is as opposed to physical and or sexual because a lot of times the minds can block out when there's physical things that happen like a like the physical abuse sometimes your minds can block, certain things out similar to emotional abuse however when this is how you're constantly being spoken to like you're a piece of shit and 10 times worse meaning by your caregiver or whomever that is supposed to be caring for you you're gonna believe it and you're gonna act like it and people get misdiagnosed get poor you know mismedicated Because people are just so quick to treat, like, behaviors and mood as opposed to, like, root kind of thing. Like, and trauma, what I've – working in my current job and just the field in general, I definitely have learned more about the impact, even more so, of trauma, just in general. I didn't think I could, and I did. Just not even with clients, but just working – with resource like working, finding resources to work with certain clients that were outside of the norm when it came to trauma.
1: Now, in your opinion, if these individuals didn't experience that childhood trauma or traumatic experiences, do you think they ever would have ended up in prison or committing crime?
0: I, yeah, I think that there's, I mean, not yeah or no necessarily, but it's definitely not like a downright, like, I, I wouldn't. There's so many factors. That's, like, why it's hard for me to give, like, an answer because that trauma could encompass a multitude of things. And you could have walked out completely, like, walked out of your home completely unscathed. But the second you walk out the door, there's bullets flying. There's, you know, whatever, slashings, you know, people stealing, like, just, you know think you know drugs being dealt whatever and you're again that's one that's another odd that's just stacked up against you so even if you come from a cookie cutter house it doesn't or a cookie cutter family in life the environment all of those like th- like basic aspects of life that like i look at that like sometimes we take for granted really does mold you <laughs> really just b- by like what kind of school you went to kind of environment you grew up in inside the house and and, and outside of the house um, it just yeah so I can't really say
1: now that same teenager or child that commits the crime because we have a lot of guests where they are committing a crime before they're even 18 or 19 years old mm-hmm. do you think that their mind is developed to the point where it could be once they get out of prison like is it do they have an entirely different mindset are they still that same person
0: what do you mean after they get out of prison? Yeah,
1: like, is that the same person that committed the crime?
0: You know, one of the biggest, you know, I my, like, biggest gripe is, like, the the, re- the poor rehabilitation aspects of things. That's, like, something that I, like, really, really, ex- especially in the prison system. Um, But no, I mean, the male mind fully develops, I want to say, by the age of, I think, 24. It's a lot older than what we would think. And so... For somebody who committed a crime at 15, 14 and 15 years old, and say they got locked up for 10 or 15 years, biologically, they're not in the same mind. However, what they've done with that mind, a lot of times, again, like what, I mean, I've what I see, what I've read about, and I'm sure you've seen, is people that go to prison are so fucking, I mean, they're dumb, but they're fucking smart. They're smart and I feel like the way – like with the institutionalization and shit, it just – it kind of – their mind instead of giving them positive or, or crucial fundamental basic factors of like saying getting a job, like a basic job, it kind of doesn't do that. It shows you how to live your life once you get out of prison having a record. And kind of using that as like your anchor in a sense. Like people, I don't know, I feel like people use that as like an identity after they get out sometimes. And I feel like the younger kids get put in prison, the more of an identity that becomes. Because it's you get wrapped up in, in whatever other family unit you may have found in prison that maybe you didn't have out there. So that mind is going to just sponge everything up, sponge everything up because I can almost guarantee you maybe eight times out of 10, that kid that committed that crime at 15, 16 years old, it was either an impulsive decision and it was just wrong place, wrong time, or something that they have seen from their environment that they've been just conditioned to do and that's why when you add in like bullets flying drugs all of these other things I just feel like it then it then conditions them further to think that okay I could I could get ahead this way I'm gonna get ahead this way and even after prison like I've spoken to people who after prison they're like i honed in on my fucking skills in prison like I learned a lot like I learned like and that's like I I, I want to smack them and I want to be like do you know what you could be doing with this brain and one of the lines that will never like quotes whatever that I'll never ever forget that will forever be implanted in my head with this is you can't solve a problem with the same brain that created it. So when you think about it, 14-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid, let's hope that's not the same mind, or that you're able to at least get in there and make some sort of a constructive change for that person so that if they do go to jail and they do go to jail for a significant amount of time, they come out and they are different in a better way. And it just ties back into like the poor rehabilitation services
1: that – so do you think that the prison system can rehabilitate a mind or do you think not it now. do you think it deteriorates it if anything I
0: think I think not deteriorating it I think it just by nature of all of the the prison the societal prison you know rule the prisonization of people all of the rules within rules that a person ha- that you know that you have when you're in jail again I feel like it's PTSD just comes alive and I just think everything when people people are in there they don't they don't realize what until they get out like kind of where their mind is at I feel like it's something like when you were in there did you like were you thinking like how do I survive or were you thinking like what am I going to eat when I get out of here Like, you know what I mean? On your daily. I think it's a mixture
1: of both depending on there's so many like variables, what prison you're in, uh, what room you're in, who you're bunked up with. Like if I had a bad bunk mate, then I could be in survival, survival, survival mode, thinking about what I'm going to do. But if I'm relaxed and my body's relaxed and I feel comfortable, like when you're at the prison camp, Mm -hmm. then you're thinking about, okay. the girl I'm going to get when I get out, the food I'm going to eat, this and that. So I think it depends on that.
0: Well, the comfort levels. Yeah. And that's the same thing. with Exactly. The and then
1: it's funny that you brought up or interesting that you brought up PTSD because a lot of people in today's world will associate PTSD with just serving in the military, say. But there's actually a lot of PTSD that comes from the criminal justice system. Absolutely. And I see that kind of in myself, too, because like I still get nerves. Like if I'm Next to law enforcement, anyway. Even though I'm completely not doing anything wrong, yeah. like mm-hmm. I just feel that in my body when I get an email from like a lawyer or a letter in the mail because of you know financial documents for restitution or anything like that. That a trigger, mm-hmm. and also like I have a lot of I get nightmares and 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 whatnot. I get
0: nightmares <laughs> really really from, bad. My and, mom would find me on the front steps.
1: Yeah, and they're like <laughs> they're like images of prison not that I've already experienced but just like fantasy scenarios like as if I was back in prison so Mm -hmm. it's not triggering something that I went through before it's triggering the thought of that concept of what could happen in the future Mm -hmm.
0: and And, then your mind will fill in the gaps yes
1: so what do you think about like that whole PTSD from prison and and how can individuals overcome that
0: so I mean Again, PTSD I feel like is something right that's stigmatized, that's puts in a that peop that's it's put in a box more or less. And when you think about like prison, it is like survival mode. You either survive or you don't. When you think about PTSD, that's basically in a sense. What you're doing, so when meaning after you experience or when you have PTSD, after you experience some sort of traumatic experience, your mind, your body, it goes into fight or flight mode. That's legit what your body and mind is doing after any sort of traumatic experience. So putting somebody who maybe like you who didn't really wasn't exposed or somebody who just, again, wasn't exposed to that sort of life in general at all throwing them in an environment that is 3,000% different, all, all I see is PTSD written all over it. And I think people really don't understand the effects that, the, that PTSD can truly have on a person and how debilitating it could be. And again, depending on the prison you're in and all of that, really depends on what kind of support you're going to have come, you know, when you get out or come every day. Just, you know, meaning if you do have a mental health issue in the prison system, specifically PTSD, where things really come alive in you and you disassociate. And you and again, you can't disassociate when you're in prison. You can't have an outer, out, you know, mind, outer body experience in prison and not a good one meaning um, because you have to be, your head has to be on a swivel. You have to be aware at all times. Like, so it's hard for people that have PTSD either prior to going into the prison system or once they get into it. It's something that I feel like... Is not is again. It's it's used as a weapon in in a very poor way. I feel like
1: now one of the uh, reoccurring questions we ask our guests on the show is habits they've kept from prison, like weird habits, like you know the the flip flops or knocking on the table and stuff like that. And in prison, guys will make fun of other guys and call them institutionalized. Mm -hmm. That's a term you mentioned earlier in our conversation. What exactly is it – does it mean to be institutionalized, and is that a legitimate thing? Can someone be institutionalized by the prison system?
0: Yes. Um, So, yes, they can. They could be institutionalized. So in in my – when I use it in my terms, I'm using it in the fact of the – or I'm sorry, in the context of mental health. So when we say – Oh, that kid's institutionalized. It means they've been in and out of group homes, hospitals, psych hospitals, um, foster homes, some sort of institution that they have to learn to basically become. That it didn't. It doesn't matter what institution they go to. You learn one set of rules, or one set not of rules. I'm sorry. One set of life rules, I guess you can say. And you could bring that into every institution you go. Now, for example, um, I've had, when I was in, when I worked at uh, Newbridge Medical Center, it's a Bergen Regional, it's a big psych hospital in Jersey, in Bergen County. Um, That we, you know, there was a, because I worked on the involuntary, units a lot of times we would have people who have been in the hospital for a very long time they'll have become like suicidal or whatever and they would come down to the unit and they knew exactly what to say they knew exactly what to do but in a bad way right. meaning to not get medicated to not get stuck like stuck with the needles they knew exactly what to do so you couldn't like you couldn't get, you didn't have to get restrained. So it's basically following the rules of that institution to survive. And it's the same. It's like it's it's. And when when I was doing a, like research and whatnot, like I saw like prisonization versus institutionalization. And then the more I went through it, I'm like, this is the same fuck shit. Like this is literally the same shit. Meaning of working it or being in multiple mental institutions. Same thing as somebody who hasn't been in multiple judiciary, judiciary systems. Order. It's the same concept. It's like literally the same concept because you learn that you have to abide by certain rules in order to survive. Whether they're the rules posted on the board or written in the air, you know you, you, ha- you have to do. And people would, yeah, like it, it's almost like robotic in a sense.
1: What are some extreme cases of institutionalization you've witnessed?
0: So (laughs) there's one client, one patient that specifically comes to mind. Um, She, when I had her, she was, (laughs) she was, she was young. She was like 22, 23. um, And she had been institutionalized from a very young age, very young age. Like I would say like eight, nine Started running away and then again was just became addicted. She had some, uh, eventually, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which again, that's a whole other animal, but that is another, that's a good example of the, like the diagnoses are another good example of when you know somebody is institutionalized because it was, on, this person literally made. The the DSM, which the DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual we use to – clinicians use to, like, diagnose, doctors use to, like, diagnose. And it's basically you open the book and it's exactly what it says in there. So I had a patient who literally – she borrowed – I had a little tiny DSM. She borrowed my DSM and I thought she just you – know, I thought she just wanted to know. She literally wanted to – Make the borderline personality disorder diagnosis come alive specifically because that is something that every person, every clinician, every doctor, everybody in that field, in the field that came in contact with her would say to her, Sally, you're institutionalized, man. When are you going to, like, what, like, when are you going to learn? When are you going to, like, and when I say extreme, I mean, like, extreme, like. (laughs) <laughs> i just think in my head, i apologize no, you're good. Totally i just good, think yeah. in my head of watching like like she would literally and again it's because she wanted to she wanted exactly what everybody was telling her she was that's what she wanted to, she was like you know what motherfucker all right you want to see me you want to see me borderline personality disorder in this institution i'm gonna raise fucking hell and good luck and it was something where it was, like, I was, like, one of the only people that she could kind of let that guard down. And it's funny because she almost forgot that, like, I wasn't a patient. Like, she forgot that, like, I was, like, a staff member. And she would trust you. Like, at one point, she's like, we're really getting them, aren't we? Like, and I'm like, bro, I'm like, yeah, I work here. I'm like you know I work here right and but it was something where it's like thankfully she felt comfortable enough talking to me about it but seeing the manipulation seeing oh the manipulation the splitting just the degree of self-harm to prove a point to prove a point and that's something, again, when I worked in, like, the group home, it was a specialty-level group home for little kids who were severely tra- uh, traumatized, like severely, like, sexual abuse, physical abuse, severely, um, again, institutionalized because every they knew exactly what to say. Like, you put them in front of a psychiatrist, they knew exactly what to say. So s- picture somebody who would meow like a cat and bark, bark like a dog Right. For for four or five hours. The second the psychiatrist comes in. Everything's good. I'm great. And because they know what they have to say, they know what they have to do. So their medication doesn't go up so they don't lose privileges. It's like it's just it's 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 sad. It's sad. It's sad. And like when I when I do more research and just see more things about like The prison system, that's just, I feel like people just legit, like, where we do nothing to, like, help people. I feel like the majority of the country is, it's just, I feel like we could be doing so much more, the the rehabilitation aspect of it. And if you had good rehabilitation services, there wouldn't be as much institutionalization. Well, Principle.
1: You know, in prison if you ask for help, like mental health help You're a lo- Probably a, lo- a pussy. Yeah, that and guys are looking at you in a weird way. Yeah. And two, a lot of the times the prison's just gonna put you in a the suicide bubble or yeah. whatever for 24 hours. And then let
0: you literally pace and drive yourself fucking insane.
1: And you think you're the problem. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And that's something where, yeah, it, it's very similar when like in the psych words, um, I used to go into people's homes severely mentally ill with co-occurring issues. So they would be severely mentally ill and have addiction issues or chronic medical and medical issues. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the areas of, like, Jersey, but, like, uh, Passaic County. is like Patterson, Passaic, some of the uh, – some of those uh, – you know, the, they're, Patterson's huge and – a ah, pretty high crime rate and whatnot, and seeing these were people that literally, again, were so institutionalized, but they lived in their own home, and I and I would bring them, say, medication or help them with whatever they were doing, getting a job, trying to get a job or resume, whatever, and they would talk to me, "Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay, ma'am. I'll take my medication right now, ma'am." And I would be like, "You don't have to do that," but it's because they were just locked up in a psych ward for the past thirty years. So that's they're going to see somebody who has a lanyard around their neck and automatically assume that you got to call me yes ma'am no ma'am and it's like just or or, or speak like that because they don't want to be yeah put on a one to one meaning like to have one to one supervision because if you're on one to one usually means you're, you're suicidal or homicidal or something so yeah like. That just infuriates me, like in hearing that. Like, and again, it's something that I've already known, like a meaning about like mental health and yeah. Because what the fuck? Like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're not like it. Just doesn't help anybody. It just it gets it gets me very frustrated.
1: Well, I, I mean, when we have conversations like this, this is what helps create change because yeah. the right people are listening that can help push that up. Yeah, you know, through lived experience is what's going to create that. Now, what are some of the mental health ramifications of incarcerating juveniles, people that are, you know, a lot of these juvenile detention centers, they're not like federal prison camps where you're roaming around. You're locked in a cell, you know, 23 hours a day. Mm -hmm. What are some of those ramifications from that?
0: So many, many times there's going to be PTSD 135 percent before they even get there because whatever led them to make the decision that they made to lead them to be in the juvenile detention center, you already know that there's some sort of trauma, something that unfortunately kind of helped them make that decision that led them there. But outside of, you know, anxiety is just, it's present in so many different ways with, with these kids. And a lot of times the depression, the anxiety, all of these things are already present and Locking them up just exacerbates them. And and a lot of times, whether it's depression, anxiety, substance abuse, OCD, ADHD, whatever it may be, a lot of times it'll trigger some serious, serious mental health issues where you have psychosis, you have paranoia, you have delusions, and then mixing it with whatever substances, you know, that the person may do – or may have access to when they're incarcerated or whatever. It's. I just feel like kids that are in the juvenile detention center, yeah, oftentimes leave with more wounds than they do. And seeing, yeah, the anxiety, panic attacks, panic attacks, panic attacks, panic attacks. That was something. That's something that is huge. Is it is a is a huge factor for peep for juveniles and they don't even know what it is i don't know what it is they don't know how they don't know the right terms to describe it they don't know they think they're they think something's wrong with them like wrong with them and again it's lack of education it's lack of education it's lack of wanting to know meaning the individuals that are sitting there and telling them that, yeah, you're you're stupid. You're an idiot. You're, you're 10 times worse. I just don't want to say it. Yeah. You know, unless I can't. I,
1: well, I mean, think anytime you put someone in a cell, like I remember when I was locked in a cell, there's a lot of anxiety. Even if you're not like claustrophobic, yeah. there's anxiety. There's because you, you get that wave like you're you're trapped. Yeah. You're you alone. can't do anything. You're yeah.
0: alone in your own thoughts. Yeah. Motherfucker, when I'm alone in my thoughts and I'm not even in a cell, I feel trapped. So, you know, and then feeling physically, you know, or being physically trapped and then not knowing really. Like, I just feel like, yeah, a lot of times they just, it's, it's like these feelings of impending doom. These feelings of just everything kind of, the whole world just crashing down on you. And... That's something that I feel like people – like. it's like a determining factor when they're getting – those juveniles, when they're getting out, it's like the the support of, okay, is it really a pending doom? Like, do, or is this person going to take my hand and kind of show me that life's not all about impending doom and they're going to help me and I have to just be open to whatever help I'm getting when they get that help? And so – I would say anxiety and panic outside of PTSD are the biggest, are the two biggest like I would just say generalized symptoms that are seen outside in addition to like a major depressive disorder and whatnot. And if you really want to go like specifics, there's like it's something called adjustment disorder and it's legit adjusting. Whatever is happening mm. in that person's life, parents get a divorce, you move, go to jail whatever it may be how you adjust to that whether it's with anxiety depression or whatnot um yeah and i just think the mixing with the stigma especially at a young age when you're trying to be fucking tough and you're trying to prove your shit specifically if you're going to go right back on the street nobody has time to learn about panic and anxiety disorders in jail in juvenile it doesn't matter what you're going to roll out looking like
1: Do you think that the individuals that get released and then go back to prison have a different mindset than the ones that get released and then stay released? Or is there something that they both share and that, you know, they just control it differently?
0: I think it is a matter of control yes but i also think that unless it's kind of like wrong place wrong time where you where whatever you're doing you really don't know that you're doing something wrong type thing unless it's like a situation like that i feel like you're you know what you're doing and unless you're taught like a a pretty strict lesson to say the least the likelihood for them to reoffend, especially at a young age, is very high. It's very high, and and the thing is, again, I hate to keep going back to it, but like the rehabilitation services, the success rate for somebody that has re- rehabilitation services at say sixteen, as opposed to sixty six or forty six, is a big difference. And I also think if it, you're reoffending once. I think it's getting that taste of you have that taste of real life and you fucking hate it. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of times people need to spice their lives up, unfortunately, when they're that young and they don't realize how much fire comes with that fucking spice, even if it is the second first time or second time. It's I think yes it comes to self-control but it also comes down to support and really knowing what you're doing is wrong or not. Now when they get individuals like that get locked up at that age
1: they're missing out on a lot of social skills. Oh that God. could be developed from college relationships anything like that.
0: I'll tell you I'll tell you right now if you're get if you're in the juvenile detention center at 14 15 years old you ha- you ain't haven't had like even this little bit of social skills, even at four or five, you just didn't. Because if you did, you would know that the social norm was not is not for you to be in jail at sixteen, necessarily. The social norm is to not be in prison at sixteen years old. So acceptable social skills, obviously, again, depends on your environment. Depends on yeah, who who you're around, who you who's teaching you these social skills, but. I've seen kids, especially in the group home, very young, very young. And and until this day, there's somebody, one of the girls, she's 22. I still keep in contact with her. I had her when she was uh, 9 till 12, and I was her everything. Um, She was able to – she couldn't use a fork, and I called her. When I got her, she was 9. She couldn't use a fork. I called her Mowgli because she walked on her hands and feet and she cut her hair and she cut her hair by herself. and She cut it real short like Mowgli. and And she didn't know how to eat at a table, didn't know how to say please and thank you, how to use utensils. But she knew how to go in and steal something or knew how to manipulate her m- manipulate her her things manipulate teachers manipulate youth counselors so people that would take care of her manipulate them but she wouldn't but take her in like the store and like she wouldn't know what to do so social skills are gone especially when there's like abuse or trauma very young. Social skills are just gone out of you don't have them.
1: I wonder if the system does more harm than good then Absolutely. in those situations.
0: Abso- Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. a 110%. The 110%, especially at that age and and the younger you get because you know the yeah, the brain male brain doesn't completely develop, I would say to say it's like 23, 24. And so it's if they don't have any other family besides say a gang or whatever they whatever they left going you know when they went to prison whatever family that they knew or support system they may very well you know get out and go right back to where they are doing the exact or where they were doing the exact same thing that they were doing before they went in meaning wherever they're Role, whatever whatever their role is, whether it's in jail, I mean a gang or taking care of their younger siblings because their parents are, you know, dad is in jail themselves, in jail himself or drunk or whatever it is. So the prison system then is reforming nothing.
1: Yeah, something I've realized nothing. is that a lack of love early childhood affects these individuals that end up going to prison because they end up joining gangs to get that love or, or exactly. whatever, that
0: family, that support.
1: And it's not just inmates. It's like I'm a guy that will date a girl, and if she has childhood issues, that carries over and that affects the way she, the ability she's able to love.
0: One hundred and ten percent. And it all
1: stems with, from that childhood.
0: That generational. It's the it's generational trauma, generational cycles. And it doesn't just have to be like cookie cutter, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and I don't want to be an alcoholic. It could be, it could be anything from like poor money habits, um, like like spend like addiction of, of just spending, um, addiction in general, food, it could be anything, just as exa- as an example. And yeah, I think that again, when you go, when you talk about the institutionalization, the prisonization. There's so many different pieces that – to survive what you have to do in jail, right? And you think that that's going to carry you when you get out. Like some people don't realize that that's not that, – yes, that's real life, but it's not necessarily real life. So again, I think that's what also kind of brings people back to doing what they did is knowing, is, is knowing okay, this is the only – these are the only things I know like how to do and a lot of people are just you know unfortunately they give up because the odds just continue to get stacked against them even when they're out
1: did you have traumatic experiences in your childhood that led you to want to take on this career path
0: 110% I did I I I coined myself as broken always have I'm proud I'm very proud I'm proud of my crazy I'm proud of my my broken I've I've always been um Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I had a lot. I actually did my um, uh, graduate thesis on my brother, my mom, and my dad um, and the trauma cycles, the trauma cycle that I saw with them and... The very first person that ever helped me, like because I was I tried to commit suicide. I had depression and anxiety before any, but you know, very, very young. And again, one would look at me and look at my history and say, what the fuck did you try? Why? You had everything. You had this. You had that. But again, I that's just how I was. I, I was born with certain, you know, with having depression or whatever and then mixing in. Being molested. Uh, by a stranger, by a family friend, I would say, underneath the table at a wedding, mixing in, being parentified, um, meaning taking care of my mother when um, that when she was getting when my dad had it, you know, when they were getting divorced. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, you know, and I think the first person that I came in contact with, that actually, I felt helped me was a social worker, and I just was—I don't know. She didn't judge me. She didn't call me crazy. She didn't try to lock me up in in like a psych ward. And it was just something to be quite. Let's keep it a hundred percent. I went into this field so I, wanting to help other people, so I didn't have to focus on my own problems. To be completely honest with you, in the beginning. That was 100 – it wasn't until I had a child that I really realized, like, fuck, like, that can't be my only agenda going into this. It's not turning and looking at myself. And I just would use my history, and I would use it to connect with people, with my clients, and it really – it. Yeah, and I think because I've had – I've done so much work, self-work, and because I like to make light of a lot of things, I think it helps – people hearing my story helps to know that, hey, you can – these things can happen and you still can come out on the other side okay and not a serial killer.
1: Now, how are you able to harness your – trauma and turn it into something positive where a lot of people can't do that they can't face it and i know it took you some time as you were saying but a lot of people can't get over that hump and and use it to to do something positive with it they bury it and they keep it within it and something that we see with all of our guests is they're able at one point or another face their trauma and move forward and that's inspirational to the world that's listening to these interviews so how are you able to do that
0: so something that I've always thought um, – I felt like I was even prior to meeting the social worker or getting into the field, I felt like I always was – I don't know. I was able to hear somebody's story, be help them, be constructive, be empathetic, be compassionate, and leave it there. I was able to separate it. And I think – what i did for a very long time and what other what i how i help other people like with in like one-on-one work is talking or going through the different events as if it's not you so sometimes with my clients i know again this is what i did with me i looked at it as if I was Exhibit A and I just studied certain things certain like, I used I used a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of fucking cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but I would again look at my myself as like a separate case. So I didn't so it kind of took away the emotion. It took out the emotion. And I was able to Feel that emotion and disconnect in a way to say, okay, I'm going to leave that here and now be able to take this terribly, terribly negative, horrible thought that I'm having and turn it into something that isn't completely detrimental to me. So basically processing my trauma as if it wasn't my trauma it was the best way, for or or made it the easiest for me. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've lied to almost every one of my therapists. I have yet to see. I need I need the therapist from literally Jonah Hill's psychiatrist from the. I don't know if you saw the documentary. No, I got to see that movie. Yes. It's 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 not a movie. It's a documentary. A documentary. Yeah. Um, but like that guy here, he's like 90 years old, and he like calls you on your bullshit. And so, like, I knew that, like, I knew that if if I wanted to be a, a good clinician, I was going to have to process and get through my shit. And doing it the conventional way, just, I'm very unconventional in so many different ways. But d- processing my trauma the conventional way just wasn't going to work for me. So I had to find another way to do it or else I probably would be dead by now. I think if the, I didn't.
1: The important thing to take away from it is that it doesn't matter how you process it, but just as mat- what matters processing is that it. yeah processing it processing. taking that step, which is the hardest step. but
0: think about yeah. it. if you don't have the support or you don't have somebody to like guide you with that after you get out of prison or to guide you or help you with like all of the traumatic stuff that just happened in prison. What are you going to do? You're going to just push it down and you're going to push it down. So, again, it goes back, I feel like, into that support and, like, just, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like we throw people out there and we're just, like, figure it the fuck out.
1: What do you think society can do to help those reintegrating back into society? Like from prison? From prison, yeah. Or even, you know, psychiatric uh, places, whatever, whatever they're coming out of. How could society be there for these individuals?
0: It's a very that's a very hard question, Ian. It's a very hard question. <laughs> um, because you can't say accept I mean acceptance, we that's kind of what we're living in now, I guess, is like the acceptance aspects of of, you know, everybody, everybody is a everybody has to be treated with baby gloves I feel like and that's not that's not it like that's that's not how I roll never how I roll not how I'm raising my son no and I feel like society we're we're all fucked up and I just feel like society as a whole we go by certain standards of things and I just I feel like the society that we live in now is not doing anybody any favors. It's just not doing anybody any favors. And so as a, I just feel like there needs to be more resources and not just resources that are open 9 to 5. I feel like there I feel like oh and a big thing that I that I could say that does is that does have to do with it or I would say would affect it people getting out and their their ability to reform would be the the person, like it's not just like the nine to five people, that there's people around the clock, and I feel like people aren't fully appreciated to be quite like, like social workers. They treat us like shit. They pay us like shit. So we're gonna do a shit job. That's like a lot of people that like I know that I work like, like I've worked with in the past. So I feel like just as a society, it's, we're just it's mental health and like help is just looked upon as you need help, you're weak. You need help, you're weak. And put that in with somebody who grew up in Baltimore or Philly. And how, like, you know, how are they going to go out and necessarily reform what they learned? They're not. They're not going to reform anything. They're gonna fucking reform anything. And I, I just, I think it starts. It, it starts le- legit with having that, like, being able to walk into somewhere and them not telling you, "Oh, we're cl- we're closed." Like walking into say, like, not necessarily a shelter, but walking into An unemployment building, say, for example, and I've seen people I've seen it it, say it's like four forty five. Like I've and I've taken people like I've taken people with me, kids to get their um, get like an unemployment application, whatever, and. It'll be 4.59, 4.58, and, like, the window fucking shuts. And the kid's like, fuck this. Why am I here? Why did we come here? Why did we waste our fucking time? And I'm like, right?" Like, right. I'm like, and, like, and then it's like, okay. It's like, motherfucker, you couldn't stay open for five more minutes? Like, and I just feel like everyone just wants to do their job and go. And I, I don't know. I, I just feel like we're all fucked. I feel like we're fucked. <laughs>
1: Now, Sorry, Ian. <laughs> something, you know, from a former inmate's perspective is a lot of the times it's a trust thing too. Like oh, 100%, if we see an individual yeah. like yourself, we're looked at in our eyes that we're just another number, another case number. So how do how do we change that? How do we get that mentality out of the inmates' minds that you're actually there to help? And also it's the same thing as like not all cops are bad, mm-hmm. but not all cops are good. So of I'm course. sure that there's people in your position going into these facilities that they're not. They to actually help the person, of course, or they're overworked and things like that,
0: and things fall through, mm-hmm. and it's something, yes, a hundred and ten percent that it's it's a hundred and ten percent seen um and it's sad, it's sad, it's very very it's very sad with some of these people um I think unfortunately you have to be you have to let your guard down. It really comes down to like letting your guard down and knowing what part of you you want to show to determine if that person is worthy of your trust. Meaning not as like a clinician I'm, I'm not speaking as a clinician. I would be speak, I'm speaking as a patient. I think it's something where everyone has to have their guard up. Because you don't know what that person's motive is, you don't know what their agenda is, and from as from a clinician's perspective, you know that going in, you know that that person, whether they're from whether they're in prison or not, nope, they don't trust you. You're not. They don't want you. Don't. They don't want you calling Difus. They don't want you call. You know, having their kids taken away. They don't fucking trust you. They're not going to trust you for another year, and it's something that I think. One, you can't be afraid to ask for, like, that hand. But at the same sense, you can't be stupid about it. Like, don't you, like, and having some sort of, like, faith and trust that at, that, there, that there is, that the nine social workers may have screwed you in the past. But that 10th social worker or that 10 do, 10th doctor or that 10th psychiatrist may be that one person that's going to change your fucking life. And when you talk about the institutionalization, prisoners or people out of prison and in, out of like psych words and whatnot, same, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They know what to say to you, they know what to, they, they, they'll, they could read you like a book and they know when you're bullshitting. And so I think it's a lot of just like generally, I don't know. I feel like people are just have to not be such assholes. Um, I, I, I've just been through so many different situations and I just feel like people get like drunk off of power. And yeah. And I just I feel like not like just having that guard up, especially whether you're an inmate out or in a psych ward, whatever it may be, having your guard up. But knowing that not every person is going to try to hurt you, Play, it's 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 I hate to say it's plain and simple, but I know a lot easier stuff than fucking <laughs> done. I get it, but just kind of having that thought process in the back or that like statement in the back of your head that not everybody is a piece of shit and not everybody is going to hurt is out to like hurt me. In that sense, yeah, because in therapy. It takes people years to build that rapport and trust, years, years, years. So I can't expect it to be any different. Somebody who's been in prison, who literally everybody has fucked them before that. What do you expect?
1: What are some of the crazy, like horrific stories you've encountered, (laughs) you know, from— um, psychiatric places to prisons, detention centers. Give us like some of the crazy ones.
0: All right. So I worked. I also worked for Greystone. Greystone is in New Jersey. It's a very big psych hospital in New Jersey. I think it's, I don't know if it's like the biggest one, but one of the biggest ones in Jersey. And, and so I had somebody. We they had separate like um rooms not rooms they had separate like cottages and these people were the people that i dealt with again had co-occurring so they had like jail they were they might have been in jail and and like schizophrenic for example or uh, like had an addiction and schizophrenic or like these were very severely psychotic people sorry ian <laughs> you're good they would co- go from graystone they would go to like like, where the cottages were, they were right on the same, uh, the same, like, over the hill. You would see the cottages. You would see, like, the hospital and then the cottages. So they would walk. People, they would leave the hospital. And you would think you're still, like, they, 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 you were on the, still on the grounds of the hospital. But it was, like, a whole nother world. So, I <laughs> it was, like, maybe, like, my third month working in the cottages. I... I'm sorry because I just think of this gentleman. He he kind of like, he was a patient, but he like he was in Greystone back and forth. And when you're in Greystone, that you're not there voluntarily, so it's like you're completely imprisoned, um, but for a psych hold. And so this gentleman, he came out of the hospital, and he went to one of the he was in in Cottage Seven. And he, and I'm sitting at the window, I'm sitting at the window doing like paperwork and he's knocking on the window cause he, cause they're allowed to roam. And so he's knocking on the window, knocking on the window. And I'm like, and I just turn, knock it on the window, knock it on the window. And I turn back. Last time he starts banging on the window. I turn. This fucking guy. This is completely like irrelevant, This fucking guy literally showed me the inside of his asshole. Legitimately. 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 It was the inside of his asshole. I was like, what the fuck? I got stabbed with a spork. Oh man. I got I had oh when I was in the when I was in the group home. Yeah, so he and the shit that Shit, not even pun intended. He had, like, fucking a CD in his ass. I don't even know how he stuck some of the shit in there. And he, it was literally because he wanted to get my attention so I could get him a cigarette. Perfect example. No social skills. No social skills. Just come and ask me. Say, hey, can you grab me a cigarette? You don't got to show me your asshole. You don't, I don't need to see that. I don't need to see that. But... Going back to, like, institutionalization, you know the people. You can see, like, you can see the people that are coming to have a problem, like, at a young age, they're, that they're going to have a problem for a very, as they get older. Like, for example, when I worked in the group home, another girl, she literally thought she, it was, like, I guess, like a furry, what we call furries.
1: Yeah, 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 furry, yeah.
0: But before that term, that was, like, coined a fucking term. Yeah. And she literally was, like, attached to my leg. And she would just purr. And she and, and she would purr and claw, claw at me, and I would walk and I would get off of me, and she, ah, ah, ah. and then the and then like the youth counselors would come and like restrain her, and I'm like, bro, she's not hurting me, she's just fucking like on my leg, like, and then that she would get out of the restraints and she would cry, <laughs> my aunt, god, she would crawl up on top of a tree. And and she would say, she would, Miss Teresa, watch this. They want me to be a cat. I'm really gonna be a cat. Motherfucker would take tubs of ice cream and take a, run, take a tub of ice cream and run up to the top of the tree. And not even eat the ice cream. She would take it and start and throw it at them as they're trying to get her. And and after she just hunt my leg for 20 minutes. You know, I mean, I've seen everything from people like fully having conversations with themselves, fully thinking when I was pregnant that I was pregnant with a devil, fully wanting to, like, come at my stomach and, like, kill me, like, kill that baby <laughs> thinking it was a devil because of their delusions and paranoia. Um, just the... I mean, when I worked in the juvenile detention center, I had a kid actively go AWOL with me in the room. Literally, we were in in the middle of a conversation. And the window, it was like the only room with the window. And I mean, I didn't work there. I came in as a like visiting clinician as like an independent contractor. So I didn't have keys to the building or anything like that. I would just meet with like five or six patients, five or six people and and this kid, I don't know how the fuck he got through this window. I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I don't get it. I don't. I don't get it. And, and like he goes, he goes, he goes. I'll be right back. He literally gets up and he just goes out the window. I was like, and I just <laughs> so like he's gone. <laughs> I was like, he left. It's just, it's, it's.
1: Have there been... Uh,
0: I've gotten bitten, Ian. It's bad. I've had to get multiple tetanus shots because I didn't trust the one from, like, two years ago. So I got bit again. I had to get another one. Like, just... Ugh.
1: Have there been things that you've seen that keep you up at night or you never forget about?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, See, that like, this goes into the whole, like, me being made for this job that I don't take shit home because there might, like, once or twice, I would say, the group home group home and the levels of abuse that the kids and sexual abuse that is some that was the one kid one girl that just her story is something that doesn't keep me up at night didn't keep me up at night but I'm not gonna lie it didn't make me consider fostering becoming a foster parent but I that I quickly shook out of that shit um, Cause I said, I, I don't want to, it was something where I was like, I don't want to mix the two kind of thing. I like being the clinician on this, on this end, not the parent, um, that her level and knowing that her eight brothers and sisters, that she was the oldest and that she at eight years old, she, and she had a, a she had a sister, seven, six, five, four, three. And then, and then the last kid was like, I think like 11 months old and hearing her stories and I'll never forget it. Never forget it. I was taking her braids out, taking her braids out. We were just talking about like school. She turns to me and she's like, Miss Teresa, my dad used to do. Now, mind you, I already knew majority of these I knew all these things but this is where like I really learned about trauma like really really learned how to treat it and how to be creative in treating it and she, she looked at me just as, just like I'm talking to you now and she goes you know what my dad used to do with a hanger and I, again I knew in the back of my head and you can't flinch you can't waver nothing you can, because the second they see that they think you're judging them so I would say What I was like, no, what happened? He used to stick that, try to stick that up me. Stick that up my girl hole. And I'm, oh, all right. And, you know, we would talk about it and all these things and whatever. And, again, it was just so frank the way that it's discussed and the way she discussed it to to just tell me, oh, yeah, I had to wear, I, I used to put on five, six, seven layers of clothes so I didn't feel the wire on the hanger or the belt. Or the broom, and again, just as calmly and frankly as I'm talking to you now, as how she was talking to me about it, and that's something that—that's something I'll never forget. That exchange, like the second something clicked in her head to say, "I can trust her," I could meaning me, I could trust mysteries, I could trust her, because this kid didn't trust anybody, didn't trust anybody, and I. And as crazy as it sounds, like when I get the trust of like a client or even somebody that would be working in the or, or in the criminal justice system, that's like a that's like a success for me. Like when I get that trust, that's something that like I like that means the world to me when I know that they can truly trust me because I know how quickly that trust could be gone and how hard it is for them to be trusting me. That's like a fucking win. That is a win to know when somebody could really be themselves around you and not have to filter what they say because they're afraid that, yeah, you're going to judge them or call the police or do something that that to me is like the biggest success, like as a clinician and as like a person knowing that like, yeah, like, yeah, it's just it's something that's so special to me that I I I, I love that.
1: What do you think about the use of solitary and the shoe and, and, and that, and the mental effects from, from those situations?
0: I just, it's, I, I don't, what benefits have they, do they say that they have? I'm just curious. Like, what if, like, even in, like, conversations of, like, like what, like, what, what, the like, what good is that? I'm just curious.
1: No, I don't, I don't know if they've, the, <laughs> the prison says there's benefits. I guess they're removing, you know, an inmate from an area, which I understand maybe for a little bit, but months at a time like I did almost six months in the shoe
0: how was it for you
1: I mean it was it it screws you up you have to be mentally tough
0: yeah like because well. you're just
1: in your thoughts I would read a lot like I dove into reading like a book a day because that's all you could do you're literally oh. you're waking up you're there it's just like
0: and you, how big was the space you were in? it's
1: pretty small it was like maybe half of this room that we're in right now you know long with a toilet and a bunk bed and Sometimes you got a, a cellmate in there. Sometimes you don't. And you get wreck time like an hour a day or a half hour a day, only five days a week. And they're just bringing you to another cage outside. Right. Um. Showers only three times a week. It's literally it's terrible. You can't move around. You feel like a zoo animal. Well,
0: what I was just going to say is that, you know, a lot of times they say like, yeah, oh, well, they're act- Stop acting like animals or they're acting like animals. Motherfucker, you're treating them like animals. Yeah not for anything like if you need to seclude
1: someone put them in a little bit of bigger pod they can make these rooms bigger yeah if you have to seclude someone Mm -hmm. i understand the concept of seclusion
0: a hundred percent
1: but not in a small space like that for that long there needs to be more
0: especially when i mean again when you're being put in prison or you're being put in jail yes you did something wrong whatever okay yes you did something wrong but I feel like when those situations happen with like solitary and shit, I feel like they're still looking. It's just like it's just everything's just wrong. It's just you're like just a mistake. Like, let me just put you in this hole and forget about you for six months. Like I just it continues to validate these terrible, terrible things that people have in their head that or that they have in their minds with them being their own worst fucking enemy. Like it's it does I personally think yeah outside and outside of a small amount of time, I think it's bullshit. I I think it does 110 110% solitary 110% does more harm than good. 110%. There's no I mean unless you're learning another language and you have something to really do in there to keep, you know what I mean? Or or you've done it multiple times and you know what to expect. I couldn't imagine. I personally, me, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. I don't know how you did it. Couldn't imagine. Couldn't imagine.
1: What would be your message to someone that's currently struggling with mental health issues right now?
0: Call somebody. Call somebody. Call somebody. Something that I would say is that Time continues to move. Life continues, needs to continue to be lived. At the end of the day, tomorrow is a brand new fucking day for you to make a different decision. Even if it is just to call somebody and say, hey, you know what? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I need, I need, hey, can you go for a walk with me? Can you just talk to me for a minute? You have to know, you have to find that light, that one tiny minuscule thing that's going to make, give you your purpose and help to know that somebody on this earth, like, wants you here and that everybody is here for a purpose. But right out of the gate, call somebody that's struggling, pick up that phone and fucking call somebody. They have so many different, depending on your state and whatnot, they have different avenues that you can call and pick up the phone and just talk to somebody that you're struggling with. And they don't; the other person doesn't have to know your name. They don't know anything. 988 is like one in New York. Um, and 211 is New Jersey, um, Bergen County, I know, where you can just pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Because typically it takes 11 minutes for a person to make the decision if they're if they want to live or not. 11 minutes, and if that is it's the same con- it's the same time frame, same concept with when a uh, a uh, person that has an addiction relapses or or considering relapsing. It's an 11 minute time frame. Or of wanting to relapse and actually relapsing. Same thing when it comes to or or similar things when it comes to suicide and hanging in, hanging on for those 11 minutes before your next thought, full thought kind of comes to intuition.
1: Um. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Different conversation when we're used to, and I think it's really going to you know resonate with the audience. And it's a different perspective, of course. And safe travels back, and and best of luck with everything you got going on. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll have you back again at at a later time. You know, love it. Keep diving into it. Now you're my go-to therapist. Oh
0: my god! Call (laughs) me whenever. You got it, dude. Awesome. (laughs)